If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters four and five of Emily of New Moon by L. M. Montgomery. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 4 A Family Conclave Emily wakened at daylight the next morning through her low, uncurtained window. The splendour of the sunrise was coming in and one faint white star was still lingering in the crystal green sky over the rooster pine. A fresh, sweet wind of dawn was blowing around the eaves. Ellen Green was sleeping in the big bed and snoring loudly. Except for that, the little house was very still. It was the chance for which Emily had been waiting. Very carefully, she slipped from her bed, tiptoed across the room and opened the door. Mike uncoiled himself from the mat on the middle of the floor and followed her, rubbing his warm side against her chilly little ankles. Almost guiltily, she crept down the bare, dark staircase. How the steps creaked. Surely it would waken everybody. But nobody appeared, and Emily got down and slipped into the parlour, drawing a long breath of relief as she closed the door. She almost ran across the room to the other door. Aunt Ruth's floral pillow still covered the glass of the casket. Emily, with a tightening of the lips that gave her face an odd resemblance to Aunt Elizabeth, lifted up the pillow and set it on the floor. Oh, father, father. She whispered, putting her hand to her throat to keep something down. She stood there, a little shivering, white-clad figure, and looked at her father. This was to be her goodbye. She must say it when they were alone together. She would not say it before the Murrays. Father looked so beautiful. All the lines of pain had vanished. His face looked almost like a boy's, except for the silver hair above it. And he was smiling. Such a nice, whimsical, wise little smile. As if he had discovered something lovely and unexpected and surprising. She had seen many nice smiles on his face in his life, 
but never one just like this. Father, I didn't cry before them, she whispered. I'm sure I didn't disgrace the stars. Not shaking hands with Aunt Ruth wasn't disgracing the stars, was it? Because she didn't really want to meet me. Oh, Father, I don't think any of them like me. Unless perhaps Aunt Laura does a little. And I'm going to cry a little bit now, Father, because I can't keep it back all the time. She lay her face on the cold glass and sobbed bitterly but briefly. She must say goodbye before anyone found her. Raising her head, she looked long and earnestly at the beloved face. Goodbye, dearest darling, she whispered chokingly. Dashing away her blinding tears, she replaced Aunt Ruth's pillow, hiding her father's face from her forever. Then she slipped out, intent on speedily regaining her room. At the door, she almost fell over Cousin Jimmy, who was sitting on a chair before it, swathed in a huge, checked dressing gown and nursing Mike. Shh, he whispered, patting her on the shoulder. I heard you coming down and followed you. I knew what you wanted. I've been sitting here to keep them out if any of them came after you. Here, take this and hurry back to your bed, small pussy. This was a roll of peppermint lozenges. Emily clutched it and fled, overcome with shame at being seen by Cousin Jimmy in her nightgown. She hated peppermints and never ate them, but the fact of Cousin Jimmy Murray's kindness in giving them to her sent a thrill of delight to her heart. And he called her Small Pussy too. She liked that. She thought nobody would ever call her nice pet names again. Father had had so many of them for her. Sweetheart and darling and Emily child and dear wee kidlet and honey and elfkin. He had a pet name for her every mood and she had loved them all. As for cousin Jimmy, he was nice. Whatever part of him was missing, it wasn't his heart. She felt so grateful to him that after she was safely in her bed again, she forced herself to eat one of the lozenges, though it took all of her grit to worry it down. The funeral was held that forenoon. For once, the lonesome little house in the hollow was filled. The coffin was taken into the parlour, and the Murrays, as mourners, sat stiffly and discuriously all around it. Emily among them, pale and prim in her black dress. She sat between Aunt Elizabeth and Uncle Wallace, and dared not move a muscle. No other star was present. Her father had no near-living relatives. The Maywood people came and looked at his dead face with a freedom and insolent curiosity they would never have presumed on in life.
Emily hated to have them looking at her father like that. They had no right. They hadn't been friendly to him while he was alive. They had said harsh things of him. Ellen Green had sometimes repeated them. Every glance they felt on him hurt Emily, but she sat still and gave no outward sign. Aunt Ruth said afterwards that she had never seen a child so absolutely devoid of all natural feeling. When the service was over, the Murrays rose and marched around the coffin for a dutiful look of farewell. Aunt Elizabeth took Emily's hand and tried to draw her along with them, but Emily pulled it back and shook her head. She had said her goodbye already. Aunt Elizabeth seemed for a moment to be on the point of insisting. Then she grimly stepped onwards, alone, looking every inch a Murray. No scene must be made at a funeral. Douglas Starr was to be taken to Charlottetown for burial beside his wife. The Murrays were all going, but Emily was not to go. She watched the funeral procession as it wound up the long, grassy hill through the light grey rain that was beginning to fall. Emily was glad it was raining. Many a time she had heard Ellen Green say that happy was the corpse that rain fell on, and it was easier to see father go away in that soft, kind, grey mist than through sparkling, laughing sunshine. Well, I must say the funeral went off fine, said Ellen Green at her shoulder. Everything's been done regardless. If your father was looking down from heaven at it, Emily, I'm sure he'd be pleased. He isn't in heaven, said Emily. Good gracious, of all the children. Ellen could say no more. He isn't there yet. He's only on the way. He said he'd wait around and go slow until I died too, so that I could catch up with him. I hope I'll die soon. That's a wicked, wicked thing to wish, rebuked Ellen. When the last buggy had disappeared, Emily went back to the sitting room, got a book out of the bookcase, and buried herself in the wing chair. The women who were tidying up were glad to see she was quiet and out of the way. It's well she can read, said Mrs. Hubbard gloomily. Some little girls couldn't be so composed. Jenny Hood just screamed and shrieked after they carried her mother out. The Hoods are all such a feeling people. Emily was not reading. She was thinking. She knew the Murrays would be back in the afternoon, and she knew her fate would probably be settled then. We'll talk the matter over when we come back, she had heard Uncle Wallace saying that morning after breakfast. Some instinct told her just what the matter was, and she would have given one of her pointed ears to hear the discussion with the others. 
but she knew very well that she would be sent out of the way. So she was not surprised when Ellen came to her in the twilight and said, You'd better go upstairs, Emily. Your aunts and uncles are coming in here to talk over the business. Can't I help you get supper? asked Emily, who thought that if she were going and coming around the kitchen, she might catch a word or two. No, you'd be more bother than help. March, now. Ellen waddled out to the kitchen, without waiting to see if Emily marched. Emily got up reluctantly. How could she sleep tonight if she did not know what was going to happen to her? And she felt quite sure she would not be told till morning, if then. Her eyes fell on the oblong table in the centre of the room. Its cloth was of generous proportions, falling in heavy folds to the floor. There was a flash of black stocking across the rug, a sudden disturbance of drapery, and then silence. Emily, on the floor under the table, arranged her legs comfortably and sat triumphant. She would hear what was decided and nobody would be any the wiser. She had never been told that it was not considered strictly honourable to eavesdrop. No occasion for such instruction had ever arisen in her life with her father, and she considered that it was a bit of pure luck that she had thought of hiding under the table. She could even see dimly through the cloth. Her heart beat so loudly in her excitement that she was afraid they would hear it. There was no other sound save the soft, faraway singing of frogs through the rain that sounded through the open window. In they came, down they sat around the room. Emily held her breath. For a few minutes, nobody spoke, though Aunt Eva sighed long and heavily. Then Uncle Wallace cleared his throat and said, Well, what is to be done with the child? Nobody was in a hurry to answer. Emily thought they would never speak. Finally. Aunt Eva said with a whine, She's such a difficult child, so odd. I can't understand her at all. I think, said Aunt Laura timidly, that she has what one might call an artistic temperament. She's a spoilt child, said Aunt Ruth. Very decidedly, there's work ahead to straighten out her manners, if you ask me. The little listener under the table turned her head and shot a scornful glance at Aunt Ruth through the tablecloth. I think that your own manners have a slight cursive. Emily did not dare even to murmur the words under her breath, but she shaped them with her mouth. This was a great relief and satisfaction. I agree with you, said Aunt Eva, and I for one do not feel equal to the task. Emily understood that this meant Uncle Wallace didn't mean to take her and she rejoiced thereat. The truth is, said Uncle Wallace, 
Aunt Nancy ought to take her. She has more of this world's good than any of us. Aunt Nancy would never dream of taking her, and you know it well enough, said Uncle Oliver. Besides, she's entirely too old to have the bringing up of a child. Her and that old witch Caroline. Upon my soul, I don't believe either of them is human. I would like to take Emily, but I feel that I can hardly do it. I've a large family to provide for. She'll not likely live long to bother anyone, said Aunt Elizabeth crisply. She'll probably die of consumption, same as her father did. I won't, I won't, exclaimed Emily. At least she thought it with such vim that it almost seemed that she exclaimed it. She forgot that she had wanted to die soon, so that she could overtake father. She wanted to live now, just to put the Murrays in the wrong. I haven't any intention of dying. I'm going to live, for ages, and be a famous authoress. You'll just see if I don't, Aunt Elizabeth Murray. She is a weedy-looking child, acknowledged Uncle Wallace. Emily relieved her outraged feelings by making a face at Uncle Wallace through the tablecloth. If I ever possess a pig, I'm going to name it after you, she thought, and then felt quite satisfied with her revenge. Somebody has to look after her as long as she's alive, though. You know, said Uncle Oliver. It would serve you all right if I did die, and you suffered terrible remorse for it all the rest of your lives, thought Emily. Then, in the pause that happened to follow, she dramatically pictured out her funeral selected her pallbearers and tried to choose the hymn-verse that she wanted engraved on her tombstone. But before she could settle this, Uncle Wallace began again. Well, we're not getting anywhere. We have to look after the child. I wish you wouldn't call me the child, thought Emily bitterly. And some of us must give her a home. Juliet's daughter must not be left to the mercy of strangers. Personally, I feel that Eva's health is not equal to the care and training of a child. Of such a child, said Aunt Eva. Emily stuck her tongue out at Aunt Eva. Poor little soul, said Aunt Laura gently. Something frozen in Emily's heart melted at that moment. She was pitifully pleased over being called poor little soul so tenderly. I do not think you need pity over much, Laura, said Uncle Wallace decidedly. It is evident that she has very little feeling. I have not seen her shed a tear since we came here. Did you notice that she would not even take a last look at her father? said Aunt Elizabeth. Cousin Jimmy suddenly whistled at the ceiling. She feels so much that she has to hide it, said Aunt Laura. Uncle Wallace snorted. Do you think we might 
take her Elizabeth, Laura went on timidly. Aunt Elizabeth stirred restlessly. I don't suppose she'd be contented at New Moon with three old people like us. I would, I would, thought Emily. Ruth, what about you? said Uncle Wallace. You're all alone in that big house. It would be a good thing for you to have some company. I don't like her, said Aunt Ruth sharply. She is as sly as a snake. I'm not, thought Emily. With wise and careful training, many of her faults may be cured, said Uncle Wallace pompously. I don't want them cured. Emily was getting angrier and angrier all the time under the table. I like my faults better than I do your, your. She fumbled mentally for a word, then triumphantly recalled a phrase of her father's. Your abominable virtues. I doubt it, said Aunt Ruth in a bitter tone. What's bred in that bone comes out in the flesh. As for Douglas Starr, I think that it was perfectly disgraceful for him to die and leave that child without a cent. Did he do it on purpose? asked Cousin Jimmy blandly. It was the first time he had spoken. He was a miserable failure, snapped Aunt Ruth. He wasn't, he wasn't, screamed Emily, suddenly sticking her head out under the tablecloth, between end legs of the table. For a moment the Murrays sat as silent and motionless as if her outburst had turned them to stone. Then Aunt Ruth rose, stalked to the table, and lifted the cloth, behind which Emily had retired in dismay, realising what she had done. Get up and come out of that, Emily Starr, said Aunt Ruth. Emily Starr got up and came out. She was not specially frightened. She was too angry to be that. Her eyes had gone black and her cheeks crimson. What a little beauty. What a regular little beauty, said Cousin Jimmy. But nobody heard him. Aunt Ruth had the floor. You shameless little eavesdropper, she said. There's the star blood coming out. A Murray would never have done such a thing. You ought to be whipped. Father wasn't a failure, cried Emily, choking with anger. You had no right to call him a failure. Nobody who was loved as much as he was could be a failure. I don't believe anybody ever loved you. So it's you that's a failure. And I'm not going to die of consumption. Do you realize what a shameful thing you've been guilty of? Demanded Aunt Ruth, cold with anger. I wanted to hear what was going to become of me, cried Emily. I didn't know it was such a dreadful thing to do. I didn't know you were going to say such horrid things about me. Listeners never hear any good of themselves, said Aunt Elizabeth impressively. 
your mother would never have done that, Emily. The bravado all went out of poor Emily. She felt guilty and miserable. Oh, so miserable. She hadn't known, but it seemed she had committed a terrible sin. Go upstairs, said Aunt Ruth. Emily went without a protest, but before going, she looked around the room. While I was under the table, she said, I made a face at Uncle Wallace and stuck my tongue out at Aunt Eva. She said it sorrowfully, desiring to make a clean breast of her transgressions. But so easily do we misunderstand each other that the Murrays actually thought that she was indulging in a piece of gratuitous impertinence. When the door had closed behind her, they all, except Aunt Laura and Cousin Jimmy, shook their heads and groaned. Emily went upstairs in a state of bitter humiliation. She felt that she had done something that gave the Murrays the right to despise her, and they thought it was the star coming out in her, and she had not even found out what her fate was to be. She looked dismally at little Emily in the glass. I didn't know, I didn't know, she whispered. But I'll know after this, she added with sudden vim. And I'll never, never do it again. For a moment she thought she would throw herself on her bed and cry. She couldn't bear all the pain and shame that was burning in her heart. Then her eyes fell on the old yellow account book on her little table. A minute later, Emily was curled up on her bed, Turk fashion, writing eagerly in the old book with her little stubby pencil. As her fingers flew over the faded lines, her cheeks flushed and her eyes shone. She forgot the Murrays, although she was writing about them. She forgot her humiliation, although she was describing what had happened. For an hour she wrote steadily by the wretched light of the smoky lamp, never pausing, save now and then, to gaze out of the window into the dim beauty of the misty night, while she hunted through her consciousness for a certain word she wanted. When she found it, she gave a happy sigh and fell to again. When she heard the Murrays coming upstairs, she put her book away. She had finished she had written a description of the whole occurrence and out of that conclave ring of Murray's, and she had wound up by a pathetic description of her own deathbed, with the Murray's standing around, imploring her forgiveness. At first she depicted Aunt Ruth as doing it on her knees, in agony of remorseful sobs. Then she suspended her pencil. Aunt Ruth couldn't ever feel as bad as that over anything, she thought, and drew her pencil through the line. In the writing, pain and humiliation had passed away. She only felt tired and rather happy. It had been fun, finding words to fit Uncle Wallace, and what 
exquisite satisfaction it had been to describe Aunt Ruth as a dumpy little woman. I wonder what my uncles and aunts would say if they knew what I really think of them, she murmured as she got into bed. Chapter 5 Diamond Cut Diamond Emily, who had been pointedly ignored by the Murrays at breakfast, was called into the parlour when the meal was over. They were all there, the whole flanks of them, and it occurred to Emily as she looked at Uncle Wallace, sitting in the spring sunshine, that she had not found the exact words after all to express his peculiar quality of grimness. Aunt Elizabeth stood unsmiling by the table with slips of paper in her hand. Emily, she said, last night we could not decide who should take you. I may say that none of us feel very much like doing so, for you have behaved very badly in many respects. Oh, Elizabeth, protested Laura. She, she is our sister's child. Elizabeth lifted a hand regally. I am doing this, Laura. Have the goodness not to interrupt me. As I was saying, Emily, we could not decide who should have the care of you. So we have agreed to Cousin Jimmy's suggestion that we settle the matter by lot. I have our names here, written on these slips of paper. You will draw one, and the one whose name is on it will give you a home. Aunt Elizabeth held out the slips of paper. Emily trembled so violently that at first she could not draw one. This was terrible. It seemed as if she might blindly settle her own fate. Draw, said Aunt Elizabeth. Emily set her teeth, drew back her head with the air of one who challenges destiny, and drew. Aunt Elizabeth took the slip from the little shaking hand and held it up. On it was her own name, Elizabeth Murray. Laura Murray suddenly put her handkerchief to her eyes. Well, that's settled, said Uncle Wallace, getting up with an air of relief. And if I'm going to catch that train, I've got to hurry. Of course, as far as the matter of expense goes, Elizabeth, I'll do my share. We are not paupers at New Moon, said Aunt Elizabeth, rather coldly. Since it has fallen to me to take her, I shall do all that is necessary, Wallace. I do not shirk my duty. I am her duty, thought Emily. Father said nobody ever liked a duty, so Aunt Elizabeth will never like me. You've got more of the Murray pride than all the rest of us put together, Elizabeth, laughed Uncle Wallace. They all followed him out, except Aunt Laura. She came up to Emily, standing alone in the middle of the room, and drew her into her arms. I'm so glad, Emily. I'm so glad she whispered. Don't fret, dear child. I love you already. And New Moon is a nice place, Emily. It has, 
A pretty name, said Emily, struggling for self-control. I've always hoped I could go with you, Aunt Laura. I think I'm going to cry, but it's not because I'm sorry I'm going there. My manners are not as bad as you think. Aunt Laura, I wouldn't have listened last night if I'd known it was wrong. Of course you wouldn't, said Aunt Laura. But I'm not a Murray, you know. Then Aunt Laura said a queer thing for a Murray. Thank heaven for that, said Aunt Laura. Cousin Jimmy followed Emily out and overtook her in the little hall. Looking carefully around to ensure privacy, he whispered, Your Aunt Laura is a great hand at making an apple turnover, pussy. Emily thought apple turnover sounded nice, though she did not know what it was. She whispered back a question which she would not have dared asked Aunt Elizabeth or even Aunt Laura. Cousin Jimmy, when they make a cake at New Moon, will they let me scrape out the mixing bowl and eat the scrapings? Laura will. Elizabeth won't, whispered Cousin Jimmy solemnly and put my feet in the oven when they get cold, and have a cookie before I go to bed. Answer same as before, said Cousin Jimmy. I'll recite my poetry to you. It's very few people I do that for. I've composed a thousand poems. They're not written down. I carry them here. Cousin Jimmy tapped his forehead. Is it very hard to write poetry? asked Emily, looking with new respect at Cousin Jimmy. Easy as rolling off a log if you can find enough rhymes, said Cousin Jimmy. They all went away that morning, except the New Moon people. Aunt Elizabeth announced that they would stay until the next day to pack up and take Emily with them. Most of the furniture belongs to the house, she said, so it won't take us long to get ready. There are only Douglas Starr's books and his few personal belongings to pack. How shall I carry my cats? asked Emily anxiously. Aunt Elizabeth stared. Cats? You'll take no cats, miss. Oh, I must take Mike and Saucy Sal, cried Emily wildly. I can't leave them behind. I can't live without a cat. Nonsense. There are barn cats at New Moon, but they are never allowed in the house. Don't you like cats? asked Emily wonderingly. No, I do not. Don't you like the feel of a nice, soft, fat cat? persisted Emily. No, I would as soon touch a snake. There's a lovely old wax doll of your mother's up there, said Aunt Laura. I'll dress it up for you. I don't like dolls. They can't talk, exclaimed Emily. Neither can cats. Oh, can't they? Mike and Saucy Sal can. Oh, I must take them. Oh, please, Aunt Elizabeth, I love those cats, and they're the only things left in the world that love me. Please. 
What's a cat more or less on two hundred acres? said Cousin Jimmy, pulling his forked beard. Take him along, Elizabeth. Aunt Elizabeth considered for a moment. She couldn't understand why anybody should want a cat. Aunt Elizabeth was one of those people who never do understand anything unless it's told to them in plain language and hammered into their heads. And then they understand it only with their brains and not with their hearts. You may take one of your cats, she said at last, with the air of a person making a great concession. One and no more. Do not argue. You may as well learn first as last, Emily, that when I say a thing, I mean it. That's enough, Jimmy. Cousin Jimmy bit off something he had tried to say, stuck his hands in his pocket, and whistled at the ceiling. When she won't, she won't, Murray-like. We're all born with that kink in us, small pussy, and you'll have to put up with it. More by token that you're full of it yourself, you know. Talk about your not being Murray. The star is only skin deep with you. It isn't. I'm all star. I want to be, cried Emily. And, oh, how can I choose between Mike and Saucy Sal? This was indeed a problem. Emily wrestled with it all day, her heart bursting. She liked Mike best, there was no doubt of that, but she couldn't leave saucy Sal to Ellen's tender mercies. Ellen had always hated Sal, but she rather liked Mike, and she would be good to him. Ellen was going back to her own little house in Maywood Village, and she wanted a cat. At last in the evening, Emily made her bitter decision. She would take Saucy Sal. Better take the Tom, said Cousin Jimmy. Not so much bother with kittens, you know, Emily. Jimmy, said Aunt Elizabeth sternly. Emily wondered over the sternness. Why weren't kittens to be spoken of? But she didn't like to hear Mike called the Tom. It sounded insulting some way. And she didn't like the bustle and commotion of packing up. She longed for the old quiet and the sweet remembered talks with her father. She felt as if he had been thrust far away from her by this influx of Murray's. What's this? said Aunt Elizabeth suddenly, pausing for a moment in her packing. Emily looked up and saw with dismay that Aunt Elizabeth had in her hands the old account book, that she was opening it that she was reading in it. Emily sprang across the floor and snatched the book. You mustn't read that, Aunt Elizabeth, she cried indignantly. That's mine, my own private property. Hoity-toity, Miss Starr, said Aunt Elizabeth, staring at her. Let me tell you that I have a right to read your books. I am responsible for you now. I am not going to have anything hidden or underhanded. Understand that. You have evidently something there that you are ashamed that I've seen, and I mean to see it. Give me that book. 
I'm not ashamed of it, cried Emily, backing away, hugging her precious book to her breast. But I won't let you or anybody see it. Aunt Elizabeth followed. Emily Starr, do you hear what I say? Give me that book at once. No, no, Emily turned and ran. She would never let Aunt Elizabeth see that book. She fled to the kitchen stove. She whisked off the cover. She scrammed the book into the glowing fire. It caught and blazed merrily. Emily watched it in agony. It seemed as if a part of herself were burning there. But Aunt Elizabeth should never see it, see all the little things she had written and read to her father, all her fancies about the wind woman and Emily in the glass, all her little cat dialogues, all the things she had said in it last night about the Murrays. She watched the leaves shrivel and shudder, as if they were sentient things, and then turn black. A line of white writing came out vividly on one. Aunt Elizabeth is very cold and haughty. What if Aunt Elizabeth had seen that? What if she were seeing it now? Emily glanced apprehensively over her shoulder. No, Aunt Elizabeth had gone back to the room and shut the door with what, in anybody but a Murray, would have been called a bang. The account book was a little heap of white film on the glowing coals. Emily sat down by the stove and cried. She felt as if she had lost something incalculably precious. It was terrible to think that all those dear things were gone. She could never write them again, not just the same. And if she could, she wouldn't dare. She would never dare to write anything again, if Aunt Elizabeth must see everything. Father never insisted on seeing them. She liked to read them to him, but if she hadn't wanted to do it, she would never have been made. Suddenly Emily, with tears glistening on her cheeks, wrote a line in an imaginary account book. Aunt Elizabeth is cold and haughty, and she is not fair. While Cousin Jimmy was tying the boxes at the back of the double-seated buggy, and Aunt Elizabeth was giving Ellen her final instructions, Emily said goodbye to everything, to the rooster pine and Adam and Eve. They'll miss me so when I'm gone. There won't be anyone here to love them, she said wistfully. To the spider crack in the kitchen window, to the old wing chair, to the bed of striped grass, to the silver birch ladies. Then she went upstairs to the window of her old room. That little window had always seemed to Emily to open on a world of wonder. In the burned account book, there had been one piece of which she was especially proud. A description of the view from my window. She had sat there and dreamed. At night she used to kneel there and say her little prayers. Sometimes the stars shone through it. Sometimes the rain beat against it. Sometimes the little grey birds and swallows visited it. 
Sometimes airy fragrances floated in from apple and lilac blossom. Sometimes the wind woman laughed and sighed and sang and whistled round it. Emily had heard her there in the dark night and in the wild, white winter storms. She did not say goodbye to the wind woman, for she knew the wind woman would be at new moon too. But she said goodbye to the little window and the green hill she had loved, and to her fairy haunted barrens, and to the little Emily in the glass. There might be another Emily in the glass at new moon, but she wouldn't be the same one. And she underpinned from the wall and stowed away in her pocket the picture of the ball dress she had cut from a fashion sheet. It was such a wonderful dress, all white lace and wreaths of rosebuds, with a long, long train of lace flounces that must reach clear across a room. Emily had pictured herself a thousand times wearing that dress, sweeping, a queen of beauty, across a ballroom floor. Downstairs, they were waiting for her. Emily said goodbye to Ellen Green, rather indifferently. She had never liked Ellen Green at any time, and since the night Ellen had told her her father was going to die, she had hated and feared her. Ellen amazed Emily by bursting into tears and hugging her, begging her not to forget her, asking her to write her, calling her my blessed child. I am not your blessed child, said Emily, but I will write to you, and will you be very good to Mike? I believe you feel worse over leaving that cat than you do over leaving me, sniffed Ellen. Why, of course I do, said Emily, amazed that there could be any question about it. It took all her resolution not to cry when she bade farewell to Mike, who was curled up on the sun-warm grass at the back door. Maybe I'll see you again sometime, she whispered as she hugged him. I'm sure good pussycats go to heaven. Then they were off in the double-seated buggy with its fringed canopy, always affected by the murrays of new moon. Emily had never driven in anything so splendid before. She had never had many drives. Once or twice her father had borrowed Mr. Hubbard's old buckboard and grey pony and driven to Charlotte Town. The buckboard was rattly and the pony slow, but father had talked to her all the way and made the road a wonder. Cousin Jimmy and Aunt Elizabeth sat in front, the latter very imposing in black lace bonnet and mantle. Aunt Laura and Emily occupied the seat behind, with saucy sow between them in a basket, shrieking piteously. Emily glanced back as they drove up the grassy lane, and thought the little Old brown house in the hollow had a broken-hearted look. She longed to run back and comfort it. In spite of her resolution, the tears came into her eyes, but Aunt Laura put a kid-glove hand across Sal's basket and caught Emily's in a close, understanding squeeze. Oh, I just love you, Aunt Laura, whispered Emily, 
and Aunt Laura's eyes were very, very blue, and deep, and kind.